I live in the city. Um, I'm actually a country boy at heart. I grew up in St. Joe, Missouri. It's, yeah, woo! Some of these guys are here today from St. Joe. Um, I grew up in St. Joe, Missouri. My, at the end of my high school career, I moved towards Savannah, Missouri, which is population 2,000. It's like a cornfield in my backyard. We've had deer jump in our backyard. I mean, it's just, you know, kind of like Hicktown Mo. And anyway, in small towns on 4th of July, you actually shoot fireworks. I know it's a, it's a crazy thing, but you actually shoot your own fireworks instead of, you know, in the city, you just kind of go and watch someone else shoot fireworks, which that's fun and all, but it's just not, you know, it's not anything compared to doing your own gig. So anyway, it's been getting used to the city the past few years here. Really love St. Louis. Um, really love 4th of July shows, actually. We went to the Kirkwood one this year, so that was a good time. But the 4th of July, it's really not about fireworks, is it? It's not about seeing it all go up in smoke. It's not about the Big Bang, but it, it really is about a dream that came true for America. It's about a dream of freedom that we capitalized on, and actually, we're a free people today, and we celebrate that. And America also had a dream recently of um, winning the World Cup. We didn't see that one happen, but we did beat England. <laughs> We've got a few English people in the church here, so that's particularly funny <laughs> for us. You can rub it into them later if you want to. Um, on Sunday, June 25th, 1865, on the beach of Brington, Hudson Taylor was gripped by God with a dream to take the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the nation of China. On the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on August 28, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. declared to the nation, I have a dream that sons of former slaves and sons of former slave owners would sit down at the table of fellowship together. We Christians are a part of the biggest dream that's ever happened in human history. We're a part of the dream of not some man who came up with it in his own mind, but we're a part of the dream of God himself, who since page two in our Bibles has been on a red-hot mission to gather to himself the nations of the world, that he would have a family, that, that, that actually we would be a family of God together under this one banner of his son's name, Jesus Christ. So we live as Christians with this incredible dream kind of written on us that this is to be our dream as well. And I think one of the most amazing things about our dream is that it's not just a dream, right? Because some of these other dreams that we come up with, that men come up with or nations come up with, these are dreams that they could or they couldn't happen. I mean, the realistically, you know, the World Cup, we dream for, we hope we can make this happen. The reality is we're not sure what the outcome's going to be. The re <laughs> Someone's laughing over there. David. But in, our, in this dream that we live in, in this reality of God, actually we know that this dream is going to come to pass. This is what God promised, how he would fulfill his dream. John 3.16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In Habakkuk 2, this is actually before Jesus ever shows up. The prophet says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So that's the dream we're living for. 
we're living for a dream where all the nations, you go to China, you go to Canada, you go all the nations, that the glory of the Lord would fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. If you're new to Christianity, that glory of the Lord, really what that means is that God's love, God's weightiness, God's character, his peace, his joy, his kindness, his righteousness, his justice would fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. There wouldn't be one ounce of the earth, there wouldn't be one grain of sand that isn't filled with the glory of the Lord. It's good news, isn't it? It's incredible news, this day we're living for. But today we kind of live in this in-between time of we have this dream that we know is going to come to pass. We have this dream that we know is, okay, God, you've kind of painted this picture for us. You've uncovered the veil of what the future looks like, but today in our lives, this dream isn't a reality. So if I were to go to your workplace, or I were to go to your neighborhood, or goodness sakes, I would come into your home, I would see that the glory of the Lord doesn't fill that place, that actually it's not perfect and full of peace. It's not perfect and full of joy. It's not completely filled with Jesus' name and Jesus's. Actually, if you were to take a poll of, you know, just this South City neighborhood, most of the people in the South City neighborhood would probably say, no, I don't believe in that whole Jesus thing. I don't believe in that Christianity thing. If you were to take a poll at your workplace of maybe people who ascribe to Christianity but have never really believed in the true God of the Bible, many people would probably say, no, I don't, I don't ascribe to that. I don't believe in that. So we're in this place of, as the people of God, we have a dream, but our dream hasn't yet fully come. I have personal dreams kind of within this big story of, I know my family, I have some really close family members who have yet to come to Jesus. And, and personally, I dream for them in a big, big way. I dream for them that they would come to know Jesus. I dream for them that they would kind of lay it all down before him and say, yes, Jesus, I receive this gift of your love into my life. And, and yet, you know, six years into this Christianity thing, I still have many friends and many family members who have, have yet to say yes to that dream. They've yet to say yes to Jesus coming into their life. Maybe you're in a similar place. I would actually imagine most of us are, where we have friends, we have family members, we have co-workers who, as much as we hope for them to know Jesus, as much as we hope for them to get this good news and, and receive it for themselves, they haven't yet. And they're still kind of living in this world of being far away from God and not knowing his love and not no, you may be that person today. You may be here right now saying, I'm looking in on this whole Christianity thing, but I have not experienced the life-changing power of Jesus Christ in my own life. We're so glad you're here. We're so glad that you're here right now. The church in Colossae was in a really similar place. They had received this good news of Jesus, and they were seeking to take that good news out to the rest of the world but they were kind of caught up in the day-to-day -day issues of life. You know, I mean, you kind of, here on Sunday, you can get all excited about Jesus is taking this message across the world. And then you, Monday shows up, and it's like, what happened to the excitement I had yesterday? And Tuesday shows up, and the coworker says something you didn't expect him to say, or that person responded in a way that you just, how could you ever say that to me? And our dreams comes back down into reality pretty quick. And this is what Paul says to the Colossians 
when they're trying to see breakthrough into their dream, when they're trying to see breakthrough into taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. He points out three really big things. He says, pray, speak, and walk. He says, these three things, you do these three things, the gospel is just going to break out like crazy among you. If, you. if you're new to Christianity, gospel just means good news. So the gospel of Jesus is the good news of Jesus. So pray, speak, and walk, the gospel is going to break out. This is the tried and true, tested method throughout all of Christianity when Christians have prayed, spoken the gospel, and walked it out. They've seen the good news spread. So jump into this first one, prayer. What does it look like to pray? Well, the big question that comes up with prayer most of the times is how do I pray, right? So there's all these different, do I get down on my knee? Do I stand up? Do I sit down? Do I lift my head up? Do I bow my head down, eyes open, eyes closed? 40 Hail Marys, just kind of talk it out, you know, just say whatever comes to mind. Do I say this pre-prescribed prayer? How do I pray, right? That's a big question. Most of us have probably asked that before. You know, when I get to the prayer time, how do I pray? Well, this is what Paul says. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. So how do you pray? Well, you show up and start praying. We can confuse it up, right? We can think about how do I pray? What do I do? Well, Paul starts here. He says, the biggest thing is show up and pray. Show up and pray. This continue steadfastly could also be translated perseverance. Persevere, if you look that up in the dictionary, it says being steadfast in doing something despite difficulty or delay. It's the same word Paul uses in Acts 2.42. speaks of consistency, which is the opposite of hit and miss. So if I tell my wife, honey, I love you so much. I'm going to take you on a date, you know, whenever a little time frees up and... You know, I've got like a little pinch of time. I'll definitely romance you. She's going to look at me like a fool and say, dude, you'll never take me on a date. You know, if the time frees up, what is that? Like, where's the commitment in that, right? Well, we can be like that with our prayer lives. We can say like, oh, I'll just catch a quick minute here and catch a... Well, Paul says, hey, continue steadfastly in it. It means being devoted to it. It means making a plan to it. Sometimes I have to sit down with my calendar and say, okay, I'm going to take you on a date this day, this time. If I don't plan for it, it's not going to happen. Well, oftentimes our prayer life can be like that too. If we don't plan for it, it's not going to happen. Why is it important to plan for prayer? Why is it worth it? It's worth it because we meet with God. He's alive. He's well. He's risen. When I pray, I don't just kind of do do do. No, no, we're meeting with God. It's something worth planning for. This word "continue steadfastly" could also be translated devotedness and earnestness which is the opposite of a casual kind of take it or leave it attitude. If you look in Luke 18, this energetic widow comes to her local judge over and over and over again. And the judge is an evil man who doesn't want to give her mercy. But Jesus says, no, she continued to come back to her judge and nagged him and nagged him and nagged him. And eventually he got so annoyed with her, she wore him down. He said, fine, I'll give you mercy. You've come back to me so many times, I'm just going to say yes, so you'll kind of quit being that bug in my ear. But Jesus then says, if your father's good, if this judge answered your prayer, won't your father answer your prayer? We can continue in steadfastness because of the character of God. So when I pray steadfastly, I'm actually making a statement that I believe God. When I shrink away from praying steadfastly, when I 
give up on praying steadfastly. I'm saying, God, I've, qu- I've stopped believing that you're good. I've stopped believing that you have my good in mind. I've stopped believing that you can actually do what you said you'll do. My wife and I have been praying like crazy for the last two years for this kind of specific thing in our life to break and change. And for the past two years, it hasn't broken. And, and just personally, I've grown really tired in that. I've just grown really tired in continuing to pray for the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And just the last couple of weeks here, I felt God convict me. I had to repent because I've, I'd given up on him in prayer. So we came together again and said, no, God, we're going to believe you to break in on this. That's what continuing steadfastly in prayer is all about. Jesus was a man of prayer. He frequently left his work to be with his father in prayer. Luke 15, Luke 5, 15 through 16. Jesus said this. He says even more, it says even more about Jesus when the report went out about him. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, their sicknesses. Jesus withdrew to desolate places and prayed. So when the crowds were raving, when everyone was being healed, when miracles, all the, all the things God was doing were abounding, his work was heavy, he didn't get caught up in it all. He slipped away to pray. Because he knew the value of prayer. He knew all this stuff, it's all fading. The busyness of life, it's fading. The miracles will stop. The work will stop. The needs of this world will stop. But intimacy with Father, that's not going to stop. Prayer, the power that comes in prayer to actually tell people about this good news, that, that we can't let hold of. Luke 22, 31 through 32, Satan wanted to sift Peter like wheat. And Jesus prayed for him that his faith wouldn't fail. So prayer is powerful. Satan was literally going after him, saying, I'm going to take you. I'm going to sift you from this like wheat. Jesus said, no, I prayed for you. I broke that power in my prayers for you. John 17, Jesus was carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders on his way to the cross. And what did he do? He kneeled to pray. Paul continues on saying that in our prayer, we're to be watchful in it with thanksgiving. This is the same word he uses in Gethsemane when he says, stay awake lest you be tempted. Oftentimes our prayer isn't because we lose a sense of value in prayer because we lose the the reality that we need to pray. It's often we just get kind of sleepy in prayer, isn't it? The alarm clock goes off and we think, oh, I'll pray tomorrow. Or something comes up, oh, I'll just pray later. As we start to pray, we kind of forget what we're praying about. Jesus said, no, no, wake up, wake up, lest you be, he says, this, this word about watchfulness is actually about being awake in our prayer. It's like Paul saying, hey, hey, the, the kingdom advance is dependent on your prayer. Don't fall asleep on me now. It's like if a century were at the edge of a camp and enemies are all around ready to penetrate the camp. That century's one job is to stay awake. So if they penetrate, he can alarm the, Paul's saying, hey, don't, if you need coffee in the morning, grab coffee. It works, you know. Pound a cup before you pray. But Paul's saying, stay awake here. And actually, the way that he says, stay awake, funny enough, isn't a cup of joe. But he says, stay awake, be watchful in this with 
thanksgiving. One of my biggest problems in prayer is that I come to God and just start telling him about all my problems, right? I come to him and just start kind of throwing all my worries up there, and then I start thinking about them like crazy. So I don't come to God first based on who he is. I come to God first based on who I am and what's going on in my life. So I can, God, I got this going on, and last week you didn't do that, and kind of like, you know, Elijah's week, like, just wrecked my car and all the finances, and what's my wife going to do to me, and God, I got these five things, and these five people, and these 20 things to pray for, and I just, you kind of walk away from your prayer time, like, more burdened and stressed out than you were when you went into it, you know, but actually what Paul's saying in being watchful in your prayer and staying awake in your prayer is that, actually, when you give thanks to him, When you give gratitude to God for who he is and what he's done, our problems and the things we're, even the good things we're praying for, like someone coming to know Jesus, gets put in its right perspective. Because God of the universe, who's the beginning and the end of all time, all creation, the one whose word is literally upholding the universe, the one, I just read this yesterday, that there's 100,000 million suns in our galaxy, like stars the size of our sun, and a 100,000 million galaxies like ours that they know of in the universe. It's like, okay, when I look at God, the one who put all the stars in the sky, the one who created all things, when I look at him and then pray for my friend, I have a lot more faith that my friend is going to come to know him. But if I just come with my friend, I start getting kind of worried that my friend may never know, or that God really couldn't save when I thank him for who he is, when I thank him for my own salvation, oh, how faith comes for the salvation of someone. It's actually a good litmus test. If you want to know how thankful am I for my own salvation, maybe check how much am I praying for the salvation of someone else. How thankful am I that Jesus saved my life? Well, how often do you pray for him to save other people's lives? Because however thankful you are, is probably how much faith you're going to have for him to do it in someone else's life through you. If you're lacking in your prayer, increase in gratitude. You don't have to condemn yourself. You don't have to get down on it. Just, no, Lord, you're good. Just start thanking him. Start thinking of things you're grateful for to him. Start thinking of how good it is that he saved you. And suddenly faith starts to rise in our hearts. We start to see God as he is. Start to meet with him. Start to hear his voice. Start to remember his promises over us. His promises over us personally, over us as a church. And we can walk as a people of faith. What do we pray for? There's two things Paul seems to pray for. He prays for open doors, and he prays for a word to send through that door. So if you think of it like this, if, if the Colossians hit this wall, and we tend to hit this wall, it's kind of like, you know, it doesn't seem to matter how much I speak to this person, how much I love this person, how many conversations I try to get into with this person. It doesn't seem how, how hard we try and, you know, spread the gospel here in St. Louis. It just doesn't seem to be getting through. Well, Paul says you've got to pray for open doors. Because if that's a hard wall, if that's, if that's kind of all bricked up there and you can't get through, well, only God can change a heart, right? So he says, open the door and then let me speak a mystery. Let me speak the mystery of the gospel right into that open door. One of my best friends, Corey Carraway, we grew up together. 
he, um, he I, you know, we kind of made a wreck of our lives when we were younger, and then I became a Christian about six years ago, and, and pretty much from the day I became a Christian, started praying for Corey that he would come to know Jesus as well, and it, it, oftentimes it would feel pretty hopeless in my prayer. It would feel like, is this ever gonna, going to break through? And um, one night I was with some friends here at Jubilee, and, and we were praying for um, Corey specifically, and one of the girls there had a picture about this, uh, this like big black sheet that she said, I feel like this is, this represents Corey's heart. It's this big black sheet where he can't see God, he can't understand what you're telling him about God, but, but God's going to begin to poke holes in that black sheet, and, and this light's going to begin to shine through into Corey's life, and, and as God pokes holes in his heart, and, and he continues to hear this message of the gospel, Eventually, this sheet's going to break open, and Corey's going to come to Christ. And, you know, even in the moment, I kind of thought, yeah, you know, maybe, like, there's no way you can really know that. Um, but, yeah, sure, you know, like, I prayed into it and wanted it to be true. And, um, but still, you know, over the years, kind of felt like this thing is hopeless. And just a few months ago, I was with Corey. He came into town to visit my wife, Rebecca, and I, and, and I was just chatting with him, and man, where are you at with this whole, like, faith, Jesus thing? You know, we've talked a lot about this. And he turns to me and he says, oh, I didn't tell you I became a Christian. So, man, yeah, yeah, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, God's amazing. God's amazing how he does stuff like that. But the reality is he had a hard, he had a hard heart to God, just like I did, just like you did. His heart was hard towards God, and God had to open the door of his heart so that he could receive the gospel, and God did that. We can take great confidence in God being the one who does that, and that's why we bow to pray, because we know, oh God, only you can change a man's heart. And actually, in in worship just a little bit ago, I felt uh, pretty strongly that there's people just in this room right now that... Um, God's saying to you, he wants you to open the door of your heart to him. I I don't know if you're someone who was raised in church, who kind of knows the religious tradition. You know, maybe, maybe you've, maybe you came in thinking, man, I'm, I'm kind of, if I can just get good enough, God will accept me. Or maybe you came in knowing I'm not good enough and God will never accept me. But this gospel, this good news of Jesus, which says that we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's goodness and God's love. But that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to actually take the full punishment for our sin. To take the full weight of our sin on himself. So that we could experience his life, his joy, his forgiveness. That message is for all of us today. We can all rejoice and be glad in that message. And I just encourage you, if you feel, yeah, I need to open my heart up to God with this message, don't delay in doing so. If he's tugging on you today, open wide the door to Jesus. He's so good. He's so worth inviting in. Nothing but fullness of joy in his presence. His right, at his right hand, pleasures forever more. So we need to pray to God to open the door of people's hearts. We also need to speak forth the mystery of this gospel. 
we kind of hate this part, don't we? I've heard it quoted that the one thing the devil and Christians have in common is evangelism. We hate telling people about Jesus. It just, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, we have to speak the truth. We kind of confront cultural norms. No one wants to hear that they're a sinner, that they've done wrong, and that they needed someone to come and save them. Paul says, speak this message out. Jonah 4, in Jonah, chapter 4, verse 11. This is what God says about a city called Nineveh that um, his prophet wouldn't go to because of his own stubbornness. God says, and should I not pity this great city, Nineveh, which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. We are in a city full of people who don't know their right hand from their left because they don't know the God who loves them. It's literally like walking around in a dark room trying to figure out where you're, I mean, you walk around in a dark room, you stub your toe, you feel a wall, you kind of feel like, oh, maybe I got into the kitchen finally. You fall into the bathtub, it's, you, you know, roll down your stairs. You remember what it was like, maybe, to not be a Christian? Maybe if you were, became a Christian later in life, you remember? It's horrible walking around in this life not knowing Jesus. Mark 6.34 talks about when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He pitied them. He felt sorry for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And it's funny here in this verse, Jesus didn't heal those people. He didn't pray for those people. He didn't give those people a hug. He didn't feed them. What he did is he taught them. He, he did all those things other places in the Bible. What he does here when he, he looks on this people and he has compassion on them, he teaches them about God. Because he knows that it's, it's the truth that's going to set them free. He knows that it's this good news of, of himself that's actually going to bring them life. In their, he, he knows that it's because they don't know the truth that they're wandering, that their life is the way it is. When Jesus has compassion on people, he speaks to them. Speaking the gospel out is declaring it. It's saying, here's the way. Saying the way is Jesus. One of the things Paul also says clear is that he wants to make it clear, which is how he ought to speak. I want to just say one little thing here about making it clear. Oftentimes when people ask us about our faith or we attempt to share our faith, we can get into this kind of like man-centered gospel. So we can, someone says, oh, you're just so kind. How are you, why are you so kind? And we say, I just think being kind is a really good thing to do. No, that's not why you're kind. You're kind because God like totally changed your life by his grace and mercy. It's not because you thought it was a good thing to do. Or they're like, oh, you're just such a good neighbor. Like, where'd you learn to be a good neighbor? Like, I'm just so love hanging out with you. And like, yeah, I'm just awesome, you know. I, uh, I don't know what to tell you. I just got good kids, too, if you didn't notice. You know, it's like, uh, uh, so I think we just got to be really careful not to have a man-centered, also not to have a gospel that says, you know, I go to church on Sundays, and I give my money, and I give my time, and you know, I'm a Christian, so it's good to meet you. Yeah. 
It's not a gospel that lifts up the things that we do. It's not a gospel that lifts up who we are. It's actually a gospel that said we were lost and helpless and dead in our sin, and that God in his grace and mercy has reached down into our filth and lifted us up to where we could walk with him. So I think we just have to be so careful to keep the gospel, keep the, the good news of Jesus centered on Jesus, who it's about. But we also know that speak, you know, praying and speaking isn't just enough, because we've seen those TV evangelists, haven't we? Who, you know, pray like crazy and speak like crazy, and people get healed like crazy, but, you know, oftentimes people are pretty turned off by that. We've seen the Christians, maybe we've even been, I know I have been, been the Christians who are really forceful with our faith, kind of pushed it on people, or kind of heavy-handed about it all, or just the Christian who speaks about Jesus and shows up to church on Sundays, then you're a total jerk at work. Or, you, you know, you don't clean up your area or you don't do your job well, like Brian talked about last week. Or maybe your, yard, your yard's a total mess and the neighborhood's mad at you for it. Or, you know, there's a slew of things that it's like we could claim this faith but not represent Jesus in our lives. And that's where Paul goes into here where he says, guys, definitely pray. Only God can open hearts. Definitely speak because the gospel is the power of God for some. I mean, there's no hope outside of speaking this gospel, but definitely walk in wisdom too. Let your life be a light so that people can see it. And he says walk in wisdom, funnily enough, towards outsiders. So it's really hard to walk in wisdom towards someone that we don't know. It's really hard to walk in wisdom towards someone that we kind of avoid at all costs. I think one of the most beautiful things about the Bible and about the story of Jesus is that Jesus was a friend of sinners. So Jesus didn't just kind of preach from a distance and say, be healed, be blessed, go on your way, stay away from me. That leprosy looks gross. He, he, he came close, he ate at their table, he took on their burdens, he loved them, he spoke the truth to them through their heartache, he put up with them when they were idiots. Jesus was a real friend of sinners. And I, I think oftentimes in my own life I've noticed a tendency to want to kind of do the Christian thing without really being a friend of sinners. And yet that's the, like one of the clearest things we see in the Bible that Jesus himself did. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you don't want someone, you know, not tipping you at the restaurant and then leaving you a gospel tract to like, like, dude, you know, give me some money if you're going to tell me about God who's rich, you know. Like, uh, you don't want someone who at work is a total jerk but then invites you to church. You don't want someone who is a horrible neighbor but then kind of looks down on you because you're not doing the Christian thing yourself. No, you want someone who, and what really wakes you up, what really oh, man, it kind of perks me up is, Someone who is different. They taste different than the rest of the world. Right, right? I mean, Paul uses this word salty. What's salt good for? Salt's good for creating thirst, isn't it? When I eat popcorn or potato chips, I want a big drink of water after that because I'm thirsty. Well, salt's good for creating thirst. It's like the flavor of being a Christian should be like being the flavor of life because the flavor of life is in us. 
it's kind of like if you were to walk up to someone's door and, you know, imagine that the house is kind of their heart and the door is the way in and we're praying for open doors, but we walk up to their door and um, knock on it and say, hey, can we come in? I want to spend some time with you. want to share this amazing God I know with you. I made a lasagna. It smells delicious. They can kind of smell it through the door. Oh, it smells good. It's, you know, it's great. I mean, we'd love for you to come in. That'd be wonderful. love to eat that and taste of that and know that. That's a, that. That would probably help that person open the door of their heart to you. If you come up to that door with fragrances that aren't so lovely, <laughs> giving off a scent that no one wants to be around, it's kind of like, oh man, what are you, it's great to see you, talk to you later, don't let the door hit you on the way out. I mean, it, it, it really w- does make a difference in, are they going to let me in to get to know them, or are they going to keep me out? Well, guys, if we don't smell that good in our life, I mean, smell here, kind of, you know, compare that to being, walking in wisdom toward outsiders, being salty in our life. We don't smell good. If we're not walking this faith out with the genuineness of who Jesus is, with the love that Jesus has, with the grace that he has, with the truth that he has, people aren't going to be that attracted to what we have to say or bring. Paul says, make the best use of your time. This verb... I, I, I'll try and pronounce it, exaggerazo, sorry, is a compound verb made up of the preposition out of and the simple verb by. So if you were to put these together, this make the most use, it would actually be to, to buy out of, to buy the time out of. And if you look at a parallel text in Ephesians 5.16, Paul says to the Ephesians, he says, make the most use of your time because the days are evil. So if you put this text with the Ephesians text, so buy the time out of, and the Ephesians text which says, make the most of your time because the days are evil. Paul's saying, buy the time out of because the days are evil. So it's kind of like there's this big river of life that's all leading towards, that's, it's this river of evil that's leading towards destruction for all people and all things. So anyone who's not following Jesus is in this river, kind of pushing all people and all tor- things towards this destruction, this evil, this chaos, this darkness that we've felt in our own lives before. And Paul's saying, this life is going down this river, and as believers, we can buy up the time. As believers, we can literally purchase back time from this river so that it can be used for God's glory. If you think about this making the most of every opportunity, essentially what Paul is saying is there's opportunities all around us where we can buy up the time for Jesus' kingdom. Jesus with the woman at the well, it's a story of Jesus going through this town, Samarita, and, and you're not supposed to talk to Samaritans, you're not supposed to speak to women, but Jesus is thirsty, so he goes to a well. There's a woman who's a Samaritan, and and I think what he sees is, I can buy up a moment here. There's a moment here I can buy up. I'm going to, she's a woman, she's a Samaritan, I don't care. He starts speaking with her, and actually he leads her to the place of coming to himself. 
Why is that? Well, I think it's because he saw this woman is caught in evil. She's caught in this river of destruction, and I'm going to buy her up for myself. I'm going to buy up a moment. You and I have moments all the time to buy up, whether it's a car ride with a coworker that we wouldn't have expected, an unusual crisis of a friend where we can jump in and intervene in love for them. It's crossing paths with an old friend, seeing your neighbor out on the street, taking a few minutes just to say hi to them, checking in with a coworker when they seem distraught. I mean, you can, the list goes on and on and on and on and on, but the, the point is there are moments all over. There are opportunities literally just ablaze out there that we can buy up for the kingdom. I'm so impressed with some of the people in this church. I hope I don't embarrass John Donjon, but John is just a, he's a, he's a father here in the church, has a few kids, and kids are doing great. Him and Pat have been married for 20, Pat, 26 years, Woo. and John has been neighbors with this guy across the street for, I think, something like 20 years now, and has been praying for his neighbor, loving his neighbor, they hang out with their neighbors, and their neighbor kind of hit this crisis in life where John was able to talk with him. And John just felt this opportunity to buy up a moment. And John shared the gospel with him, and the guy came to Jesus. It's just amazing to me how so many people in our church are doing just that, just buying up moment by moment by moment. David Quad, it's a good friend of mine, he, he um, works at Supplement Superstore, and there's a new guy that joined the store, younger guy, you know, quite a bit younger than David, and David had two options. He could have went the option of, I'm kind of going to harass this guy, treat him like the younger guy, have him run all my errands, you know, be my, you know, kind of give him a hard time. But instead he takes this guy under his wing, loves him, befriends him, invites him to a big barbecue we were all doing, introduces him to all his friends. So he has friends now that are older than him. And the guy feels like, oh, yeah, you know, this David guy is really awesome in my life. What, do you, what was he doing? He's buying up a moment. He was buying up a moment where it could have just been another coworker in the day. But no, it was an opportunity to buy up the time. Paul goes on to say, let your speech always be gracious. You could interpret this one of two ways. You, it, it, it could read, let your speech be um, influenced by divine grace. So let your speech be influenced by God. It could also read, let your speech be full of grace. So let your speech be full of the grace that you've received. Kind of like Jesus says in Matthew 10, freely you've received, freely give. Kind of like, okay, you've received this grace, now let your speech be full of it. Or let your speech be influenced by God. I think both ways we can see in the Bible are backed up and they're good. Both, we can take both of these and say, yeah, e either way Paul meant this. It was of God. So the first one, influenced by divine grace, really that's walking in the Spirit. If we walk in the Spirit, tuned in to God's voice, praying at all times in the Spirit that God would lead us and direct us, our speech with people can be influenced by divine grace. The speaking full of grace, really that comes from a place of understanding what God has done for us and then giving that out freely, just like it was in Matthew 
repent, if I realize that he's loved me, that he's cared for me, that he's sought me, that he's pursued me, that he's fought for me, that he's laid down his life for me, in seeing that, in living in the good of that, I can fight for other people. I can speak to them graciously, even though they may not be that gracious to me. I can give them grace. I can give them the grace of my words. I can season it with salt. I can make it full of life. I can bless people when they don't deserve it. You ever do that? You ever see someone and just say, man, it was so good to see you. I just love this about you. Oh, it's so good to see you. I just love it when you do that. It's amazing. It's filling our speech with grace towards people. A lot of this stuff is really down to earth, Paul's talking about. You know, he goes big, pray, speak the gospel. He goes really nitty gritty down to earth as well. That our speech would be full of God's grace. How are you doing with your speech being full of grace? Is it, does it sound pretty stressful and busy? Does it sound frustrated at work? How's your speech at work? How's your speech at home? Is it full of grace? Finally, Paul says that we should know how to respond to each person. 1 Peter 3.15, Peter talks about having a defense for the hope that's in us. So when people see the hope within us, so this is kind of the first part, they have to, there is something that they'll see in us, right? There's a hope beyond this life that we're living for. And when we tap into that, when, we, when people see, oh, no, there's something different about this person. There's something salty, something gracious, something, they've got hope in something that I don't have. Paul's, or in 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says, hey, have a defense for that. Be ready to answer them when they bring that up. And there's really two things to that. There's, there's having a, an understanding of the hope that's in us, an intellectual understanding. So there's, there's having an understanding of the truth of where we have our hope. We have our hope in heaven, not on this earth. We have our hope in Jesus, not in ourselves. Some practical things that we should know about our faith if we're going to talk to someone about it. There's also an, an experiential side of this hope. There's, there's, there's having experienced this hope for ourselves. So when someone says, hey, why are you like this? We can say, well, my hope is in Jesus. So I know that in my, but I've also, I've, exper- I've actually experienced Jesus in my life. I've experienced his love. I've experienced his kindness. I know from the Bible He died on the cross to forgive my sins. I know from the Bible that when I put my faith in him, I died with him. That he would make me a new man. But I've also experienced when I put my faith in him, I knew my sins were forgiven. When I put my faith in him, I knew this old wretched man that I was. He had made a new man in him. See, it's both. We need to know intellectually where our hope is. We also need to know experientially where our hope is.